Amen. Y'all don't clap in this church, do you? That's worthy of an applause. That was beautiful. Very nice. I love that song. Thanks for having me today. Happy New Year. Who stayed up too late watching football besides Pastor Austin? Austin's become a friend of mine, and I appreciate him very much. We have really long breakfasts in the morning. I have to rent the booth. I have to pay rent on the booth. We stay there so long. We have a good time. Um, so January 1st. 2023. Whoever thought you'd be here? I was thinking about that yesterday. I was remembering the year, I think it was, I was thinking back to, you know, when I was a kid and it was like 91 for me. Um, but I, I would have thought, I would have never imagined the year 2023 and I'm still around. Then I started imagining how long might I be around? And I, I started imagining, what about 2050? And I'm thinking like, yeah, I may be around still. It's crazy to think. 2023, we're tempted to uh, start New Year's with the idea that maybe we should start new things, right? Start something new. I'm convinced of this. I've lived long enough to know, and I'm sure you all have too. The, big, the greatest change and the greatest victory and the greatest successes in life don't always come when we start something new, but usually when we stop something old. When we just let go of something that we've been holding on to for a long time or break an old pattern, it's usually not starting something new. It's usually just letting go of something that we've been doing for a long time, maybe the wrong way. So maybe that could be, be the message this morning. Encourage some of us, I'm not sure. Maybe you got the pressure on yourself today to have, a, have a, the, the willpower to start a diet or to do something new and maybe just go, what can I just let go of? It's been a big heavy weight riding my back for a decade or so. Maybe I can just let go of something and that'd be some... Peace and rest beginning this new year and some victory. I'd like to start my uh, message this morning. Uh, I want to keep it brief, but I'd like to start with an illustration, if that's okay. And you're going to have to indulge me because it's going to be a little bit junior high in nature, okay? You're not going to think so at the beginning, but it's going to get there and it's going to have a moment in your, where you're going to go, that's middle school. And just go with me on it, though, okay? So just imagine you're walking through a park on a really nice day and you're enjoying yourself, and all of a sudden, your silent uh, rest is broken by these blood-curdling screams. Just imagine that. You hear screams from somewhere in the park, and all of a sudden, all your senses are heightened, and you begin to look around, and you identify the direction from the scream. As you look that direction, you notice that there is a group of people huddled around a park bench. And those people are motioning violently towards a park bench. And you just assume that they must be harming someone on the park bench. Does that make sense? And so now you are a, an eyewitness to what you believe is an atrocity. And everything within you now begins to change, right? Your blood starts pumping. How many of you are those type? Would your blood start pumping? Would you start, maybe your palms start sweating? Sometimes people's underarm itch. I don't get that one. You know, sometimes my wife's like, when I scare her, she's like, you made my armpits itch. I'm like, that's a weird reaction to fear. But, you know, you get the armpit itching, I don't know, and you just, everything in you, and you think something must be done. Action must take place. Something is happening, and it's therefore something must happen. Now, where are all my justice warriors, the ones who would ball their fists up and just go dive onto the pile and start ripping people off? Are anybody like that in the room this morning? 
Nobody, just a bunch of passive Presbyterians. How many of you go, I better call someone to get on this right now while I watch? <laughs> That's probably the more reasonable thing to do these days, right? You don't want to get canceled or anything for doing anything rash. So, so okay, so before you even call 911 then, you get a little closer to the action and, and you're just, man, everything in you needs this to stop because you're witnessing reality and this is not good. So what you do is there's a ledge that goes up behind the park bench and you actually walk up onto the ledge to where you can get a bird's eye view down in the crowd and onto the bench. And what you notice is that yes, there are a group of people motioning violently towards someone who is screaming in pain on the bench. All that's true. But what you now notice with a different perspective is that that person's whole body is covered with flesh-eating bugs. That's the middle school part, okay? Their whole body has been covered with these bugs that are trying to burrow into their skin and kill the guy, right? And these people at great risk to their own safety are actually pulling the bugs off of a person. And all at once, everything in you changes. You don't want to stop them anymore. You want to help them. Everything about how you feel and everything about what you want to do changes in a moment. And the only thing that changed was your perspective. Everything was happening as it was happening. You just didn't see it right. And when you did, everything about you changed. Your desire changed. Your behavior changed. Your feelings and emotions changed. And so that's where I want to start today as we dive into just one short passage about seeing it right, seeing the words of Jesus as they were intended to be received. So if you have a Bible and you want to open up, I just have one short verse for you. It's found in the book of John, chapter 14. And we're going to look specifically at verse 15. John 14, verse 15. Now, if you've read your New Testament very much, you know when we're in the book of John and and in chapter 14, you know the scenario that we're in. This is the upper room. This is the Last Supper. This is Jesus going into an upper room with his 12 guys, and he has one last talk with them. Now, think about this. What if you had your loved ones around the dinner table one last time, and you knew it was the last time? Would you talk about football? Would you cut up and make fun of things? You probably wouldn't. You would probably just feel the gravity of the moment, and you would just say the most important things. That's what Jesus does during this meal. You can remember he begins in chapter either 12 or 13 by taking off his garment and wrapping a towel around his waist, and he washes their feet. This is all intentional. These are serious things. He tells them, I give you a new commandment. I want you to love. As you've seen me love you, I want you to love one another. And then he continues to talk, and he says, if you believe in God, believe also in me. I'm going away, but I'm going to prepare a place for you that where I am, there you also shall be. And he says, you know the way to where I'm going. And Thomas says, we don't know where you're going. And he looks at him and he says, you do. 
I am the way. So he's teaching them these massive lessons. One last time, he's reiterating everything they need to remember. I am the way. And then we get down further in the conversation to, to verse 15, and he says this. If you love me, you'll obey my commands. If you love me, you'll obey my commands. Now, I'll, t- I'll tell you what, as a, as a Christian young man, I read that verse since the time I became a Christian at, at the age of 14. I read that verse, and for some reason, in my law-keeping, legalist, self-righteous kind of way, I always read that scripture wrong. It always meant this to me. If I want to prove to God and to everybody else that I love God, there's a whole lot of stuff I should be living up to. Has anybody else ever felt like that? If I want to prove to God and to everybody else that I love God, man, I got a whole lot of things that I got to be doing just right. That's such a heavy weight and such a heavy burden. And it's, you know what it is? It's anti-gospel. And I didn't know it. Jesus didn't say, get yourself all cleaned up and get right and prove that you love me. He just said, if you love me, you will. There's something that must precede obedience. Does that make sense? There's something that must come before our obedience, before our obedience can ever be. And even if we seem to be obedient, if this one thing does not precede our obedience, our obedience is not acceptable obedience to God. Does that make sense? The whole Old Testament is about the law coming to a group of people who did not love God. They loved themselves. And so the law was therefore their prosecutor showing their evil hearts how much they did not love God because they kept breaking the law all the time. They would do all the customs. They would have the traditions. They would perform the sacrifices. But God knew one thing about him. And if you read through the whole test. Old Testament, you understand this one thing. He's like, I don't want your sacrifices anymore. I want your hearts. All the pomp, all the circumstance, all the law, it's to draw you to me. It's to show you that you're supposed to be completely enamored and fixated on me, and you're not. You're just good at doing things. So there's something that must precede an obedient life to God, and that is a love for God. Now, if you've only approached God for what he can do to help you build your earthly kingdom, there won't be much love for God because there's too much love for self. I was guilty of that. Maybe the last time I was here, I shared that with you. I was a man who, was, who was, had become a successful professional Christian. I was in a large ministry, a musical ministry, and I was on a large church staff, and I had become a good professional Christian. But what I realized I was doing was this. I was building myself a kingdom in Jesus' name. Everything had to cater around me and my name and my, uh, my reputation and my value and my net worth and my success. And there was no awe and wonder about our awesome God. And when I say the word awesome about God, I don't mean it in the pop culture and modern sense. I mean, he is awe-inspiring. He's wonderful. He is the most valuable treasure that one could seek. My favorite parable Jesus ever told is about the man who found treasure in a field. You remember that one? It's like one or two lines. It says, a man found a treasure in a field in his joy. He covered it up. And he sold everything that he owned in his joy. 
to buy that old dusty field that no one else wanted. That's what I mean when I began this morning by saying it's not new things. Sometimes it's just letting go of the old things and realizing the treasure that we have in Christ that doesn't, that doesn't require our, our talent, doesn't require our, our, so much of our effort as it does our surrender. So something must precede our obedience before obedience is ever achieved and before it's ever acceptable to God. And this one thing is this, we must have a love for God. One of the things you'll find in the world that we live in is that um, busyness is applauded. Now, some of you may have lived long enough to understand that busyness isn't always a good thing. Anybody in the room, you've, you've learned that lesson by now? I'm in the middle of learning it, 2023. I got to say no a little more, okay? Busyness isn't always a good thing, but so, so many times we try to prove ourselves by how many things we can take on our plate, and we just leave ourselves worn out and empty. But busyness has been applauded. But you know what? It's never a waste of time to just sit still and spend time with God. You know, you might have been a Christian for a long time or even thought you were a Christian for a long time and had a Bible in your house and opened your Bible on a regular basis. I'm not sure. But God is a God who wants to be experienced. God is a God who wants to overwhelm you in your mind and in your heart. I can remember being on tour with the band Casting Crowns. That was my band. And we would play these big, big arenas. And I remember when God really began to work in my heart, I would look around at this big arena full of people, and it would have all that the world could offer. We would have lights and sound and video and popcorn and everything that you could want for comfort, right? And I would look around at the arena, and I would go, I, I pray that what's going to happen here tonight is not these people's greatest experience with God that they'll ever have. Because my greatest experiences with God that I've ever had have been alone, with God's word open, being convicted, being visited by the Holy Spirit, being challenged. Some of the greatest things that have ever happened in my life have been alone with God whispering only to me. I wouldn't trade them for any other experience. These are the kind of experiences, though, we must be pursuing so that we will have an experiential kind of love for God that will cause our obedience to take place and to be pleasing to God. Does this make sense? Let's break it down even more simple. Who has children in the room? Do your children deserve all the things that you've given them? Somebody said yes. You must have some really good kids. Mine don't. They don't deserve it. They disobey. They don't clean their room. The trash doesn't get taken down to the end of the driveway. You know all the stuff, right? They fuss and fight with one another, right? How is it that me, a father, could provide them every single thing they need? They don't have a care in the world, yet they just want to fight with each other. I don't get that. My kids don't deserve everything that they have, but they have it. They have it because I provide it for them. That's the kind of love we're talking about here. It's the kind of love that's just there, and it causes me to do things that I don't even necessarily feel like I should do, but I just want to do them for my kids because I love them. It's the same for us. It's that kind of love that drives action. 
Now, when we love God, there's never a wrong thing we can do for him. There's never an unjust, unbalanced thing. He is worthy of every act of obedience and every sacrifice of praise like we opened on the, the by the way, that thing is mesmerizing to me. That's a mes- and your feet were going too. You're playing the bass notes on your feet. Does y'all know she plays with her feet too? That's a thing. Very good. Sacrifice of praise. You can't outgive what God is worthy of receiving. So our obedience must be preceded by something for it to be acceptable to God. God is not looking at your actions. He is looking way before your actions ever happen into your heart. Now, this could be scary for some people who think they've got God fooled. But it hopefully this morning is a big giant weight off of all of our shoulders going, God, you mean what you're really looking for is for me to just rest in you and know you to the point that I actually love you? You mean to tell me that our relationship together is supposed to be enjoyable? Yeah. It is. Jesus knows that. Jesus said this in Matthew chapter 6, verse 21. He said this, For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. He knows that our affections have an effect on us. Does that make sense? Our affections have an effect on us. What we love matters. You will pursue, you will serve only what you love and nothing else. There was a 19th century preacher named Thomas Chalmers. Anybody ever heard of him? Thomas Chalmers penned a really wonderful sermon that seemed revolutionary for the time, but he was really, I think, just reading Jesus' words here in in Matthew chapter 6. The name of the sermon was this, the expulsive power of a new affection. The expulsive power of a new affection. What he's saying is this, the power to cast out old things when you love something new. The power to make old things seem worthless when all of a sudden there's something new that you love more. There must be something more immediately gratifying to us than the temporary pleasures of our sin if we ever hope to obey God. Does that make sense? There must be something that means more than that temporary gratification from the sin we do if we're ever going to obey God. And that thing must be our relationship with God must be that immediately gratifying at all times if we ever hope to obey him. We must love God. The power to stop sinning comes when we love something else more than we love sin. So now Jesus' words begin to make sense. If you love me, guys, don't worry about it. You you feel like you haven't even remembered everything that I've said. I mean, Thomas is sitting here going, we don't know where you're going. How are we going to get there? And he's like, Thomas, don't, don't sweat it. Just it's me. I'm the way. Don't worry. And he goes on to say, guys, I know you're scared. I told you I'm leaving You're scared you're going to mess it up. You're going to do it all wrong. But understand this. If you love me, you're going to do it all right. You're just going to. 
Like, I'm going to be walking this way, and you're going to follow me. And what you're not going to realize is that sin and darkness and all that is going to be over there. And you're not consciously trying to stay away from it. You're just following me, and I'm keeping you away from it because you love me. The gospel is so much simpler than we make it. It's childlike faith. It's surrender. It's complete dependence upon this Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. So let's then just briefly look at three things that might help kindle our love for the person of Jesus then. Some things we can stake our anchors in and go, you know what, when I'm tempted to sin because my love is weaning, let me remember some things about who he is so that I can value him for what he's truly worth and not put sin above him. Number one, let's take a brief look then at his power. If you're taking notes, you can write that. Power. Let's take a look at the power of the Lord Jesus. Excuse me, Colossians chapter 1, verse 15 through 17. It says this. this, These have got to be some of the most incredible words in, in the scriptures. Paul writes to the church in Colossae. He says, he, meaning Christ... He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation, for by him all things were created in heaven and things on earth, things that are visible and things that are invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through him and for him. And he is before all things. And in him, all things hold together. That's a whole lot of praiseworthy things said about Jesus right there. I mean, that is like a massive load. There are so many implications of those words right there. He's the image of the invisible God. All things were created through him. Then he goes to describe what all things might be just in case we don't quite glorify him enough for all that he made. Things not only on the earth, but things in heaven. Things visible and invisible. What is something that's real yet invisible? Think about that for a second. A little, a little brain teaser for us. What's that? Wind? I like it. Wind. Do you, do you like the wind? Does it feel nice to stand on the beach and feel the breeze? He made that. Don't, don't, don't take that for granted. What would you have over there? Magnetism. That's a good one. It's invisible, but aren't you glad we're not floating all over the place right now? It's nice to kind of have two feet on the ground. That, that, you know, before you thought of that, and benefited from that, he already had you covered. Magnetism. How about time? Time. You know, he's, he created it, so he's the owner of it. Like, it doesn't affect him. He's outside of it. He rules it. But we benefit from it. Or maybe we don't benefit from it sometimes. If you're like me, you're always running late. Time. Some of you feel like, I'm running out of time. But the cool thing is, he's our hope. And so when we go to him, time's not the enemy anymore. Time. It's another wonderful, invisible thing that he's thought of way before us. It doesn't scare him. 
It doesn't hold him back. Yet he uses it to govern our lives. He is praiseworthy. All things were created, it says, through him. But here's the most glorious one. And for him. He's before all things and in him all things hold together. Is there a single thing that you cannot praise God for in your life? According to this verse. Even your sufferings, your sickness, your trials, and your injustice, the Bible says, are all used for your good. It's Romans chapter 5. Even your trials, he says, I I use them for your good. You know what I use your trials for and your sufferings? Because if you hope in me, I'm going to prepare you to enjoy me forever. Because you're going to suffer to the point in this carnal, temporal world that you're not going to love it anymore. I'm going to help you not love this world anymore. And you're going to love me more. And you're going to hope in me more. And I will not disappoint you. That house you got, that you had to paint already, it fades, it rots, it rusts. That boat, that everything that you have, it fades, it rots, it rusts. There was a little glimmer of hope you had in it, but you don't have it anymore because it's gone. I will never disappoint your hope. I am an everlasting hope. And I will let all things in life that come and go and fail you and and leave you helpless, I'm going to use those things to cause you to love me more. Is there anything in your life that you could possibly not praise God for? You can praise God for everything in your life because he, he has a hand in every bit of it. So when you're tempted to choose sin because your love for God is grown cold, remember that there is nothing in your life that he does not have control over, that he has not exerted his loving hand of creation and control in. Remember that. He's here. He's here. He's not distant from us. Remember his power. Two, remember his eternal love and kindness. Now, a God who is all-powerful yet not all-loving is a scary God, wouldn't you say? A God who can come up to you and just for his own sick pleasure squash you like a bug, that's a scary God. We don't have a God like that. We have a God whose glory includes us. It includes bringing us close to him. It includes showering us with grace and love and mercy and riches and privilege forever and ever and ever. That's what this all-powerful God does. He's not like the celebrities and the rulers of the world that like to loom their status over people. He's not like that at all. He likes to share it with us. He likes to bring it in, us into it. He likes us to benefit from us, from from his glory. That is one of the wonderful things about God. And so when you're tempted to stop loving God and go chase sin, remember, that ruler wants to lord it over you. He wants to punish you. He wants you to be in despair forever and ever. But the one who made you, he loves you and wants to share his kindness with you forever. It's Ephesians chapter 2. I'll read verses 4 through 10. Just listen. Verses 1 through 3 talk about how we have turned away from God, how we've become children of wrath, how we deserve, according to our actions, God to go, you're done. But look where verse 4 picks up. But God, but God. This doesn't have anything to do with us. This is a rich and merciful God. But God, being rich in mercy... Because of the great love with which he loved us, 
even while we were dead in our sins, chasing that over there, he made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved. And then he raises us up with Christ and has seated us with him in the heavenly places. And for this purpose, verse 7, so that in the coming ages, the coming ages forever and ever and ever, he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness towards us in Jesus. God saved you to bring you close to him so that forever and ever and ever he could show you kindness that cannot be measured. This is a reason to love and adore this awesome God we have. His power and his kindness towards us. He loves us. He has a desire to bless us. Even when we suffer in this life, his plan in saving us is that he might forever and ever and ever show us immeasurable amounts of kindness. If you're a Christian believer, saved by grace, born into the family of God, you are a privileged person and don't ever apologize for it. You're a privileged person. All must come, but they all must come through the narrow gate. And if you've been able to come through that narrow gate by the grace of God, you are a privileged person, and the Bible says we are. We will forever and ever receive immeasurable amounts of his kindness towards us. I've got a recording studio at my house, and it's really cool. It's new, and so a lot of people are interested in it, and they're coming over and checking it out. And I have two sons that, that like music. And um, this is a really shallow illustration for what I just said, but my two sons like music, and everybody who comes to my recording studio is usually paying me money, right? That makes sense, right? I didn't build it for a hobby. Like, it's a thing, right? So it's, it's a way that I make income. I can record people's music. So people come, they pay, they pay money, and we record their music, and it's a very simple transaction, right? Well, my kids have free reign as much as they want in there. With all the expensive stuff and all the, 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 the uh, delicate things, my two teenage sons are allowed to go in there and do whatever they want. One, because I trust them. They know how they should act. But they're my kids. So, like, what everybody else wishes they could just come and have their leisure in, they don't, they're on the clock, they have to pay. My kids just come and have immeasurable amounts of leisure and fun and experience. And every now and then they have a friend over. And that friend's not invited in unless he's with my sons. Does that make sense? So now my, 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 my kids and their friends are all in there living it up, doing all their musical things more than all their other friends. They got all these experiences and all these things at their fingertips. Why? Because they're my sons and because he's with my sons. That's how it works. Why do we get the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness? Because Jesus is his son. And if we're in Christ, we get it too. We get it too. You don't have to be rich, not talented. You don't even have to be the most self-disciplined. You don't have to be the strongest. You don't have to be any of that. You have to be the one who says, I just trust God with all my heart that this is true for me. I believe. Belief and obedience are synonymous with salvation all through the scriptures. 
John 3.36, whoever believes in the Son has life. Whoever does not obey the Son does not have, cannot see life, and the wrath of God remains on him. Obedience and belief are synonymous. If we don't obey God, we don't really believe that God is good. We don't really believe he's as powerful as he says he is. We don't really believe he's as kind as he says he is. We must first encounter this great God. There must be a love for God in our heart. We must know him, and that must produce the kind of life that says we believe that he is who he says he is. Lastly, I want to invite you to look at the rest that God offers us through Jesus. Matthew eleven twenty eight. Come to me, Jesus says, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me. You know, Jesus wasn't overcommitted. Jesus didn't have a chip on his shoulder to prove to everybody that he could be successful. Jesus wasn't trying to please everybody. He was trying to please the Father. He said, I don't say the things that I want to say. I only say what I hear my Father saying. And I only do what I, hear my, what I see my Father doing. He said, take that yoke upon you. Come to know me. Come to love me. Come to not want to please anybody else but me. Take that yoke upon, upon yourselves. Learn that from me. You'll find rest for your soul, he said. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. How many of you this morning would say, somewhat revolutionary for me to think of it like that. Before I ever must try to live some life for God, maybe I should just slow down and just try to get to know God. Because if love must precede my obedience, I, gotta, I don't love a system. I work for a system. But if there's a real God who created everything and holds everything together by the word of his power and is real and is active and is alive, and he has that much goodness for me in mind, and no matter who harms me, and even if I harm myself, he can and will show kindness to me forever, and he invites me to come and just be like a child and rest in his arms. If he is real, then I love him. I believe that he's real, and I love him, and that informs every single thing that I do in my life. When I'm cut off in traffic, he's here with me. It's okay. When I'm sick, I'm not the best patient, by the way. My wife told me that this week. You're not a good patient. I just get cranky and I want to be by myself. I have to remind myself, this doesn't surprise God. He's good. I'll suffer now, but forever and ever and ever, because I'm in his son, there's good in store for me. This is a God that I love. I trust. This is a God who helps me in my time of sorrows. This is a God who sent his word at the cost of his prophet's life, at the cost of his own son's life, that I have for me now to read every day, and his Holy Spirit makes it real for me. It helps me in everyday decisions, in everyday situations. When I grow bitter, he helps me to forgive. When I've grown cold, he rekindles a fire again. He helps me make business decisions. He helps me make amends with my family. He just helps me because he's real. This is a God we can love and therefore obey. So take Jesus' yoke upon you. Be like those disciples in the upper room who hear the words, listen, don't, don't think you're not smart enough. Don't think you haven't got it all written down in your note journal where you've got it memorized. Don't worry. If you love me, you'll obey me. It'll work. Love me first. Before you try to do the, win the world for Jesus, just get to know Jesus. Just love 
Jesus. Let's bow our heads. Heavenly Father, we thank you so much for the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, for the immeasurable riches and kindness that you've showed and will continue to show to us. God, help us break free from a cold, legalistic trap of religion and let our religion be the reflection of the heart that you've given us. God, let our religion be pure because of our great love for you. Let what we do and what we say and what we think be pure because you're real to us and we know you and you work first in our hearts and then in our hands. Father, would you perfect us through a love for you? We ask in Jesus' name, amen.